don't talk too much. Just talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I'm Eric John. And uh, before I tell you about Yacht Soda, I do want to mention, um, so those of you who have been listening to the show uh, for a little while, um, you're probably wondering, what the hell is Just Listening? So the show title, I decided to change. And the reason being is that it just started to feel like calling the show, shut up, you're always talking when I'm doing pretty much all interviews, uh, didn't really feel right to me. So, um, you know, I decided to stick with the Goodfellas theme, of course, one of the best movies of all time, and uh, even stuck with the same scene. Um, but Just Listening seemed a lot more appropriate. So uh, going forward, that is the name of the show, Just Listening. Um, so before we get to uh, me introducing our guest, uh, I want to tell you about Yacht Club Soda. Of course, Yacht Club Soda is the best artisan soda in the entire world. They've got all sorts of flavors. They've got blue raspberry, lemon lime, orange cream, regular cream, root beer, strawberry, grape. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Get yourself over to YachtClubSoda.com and order some for yourself today. You don't have to live in Rhode Island anymore to enjoy the best absolute best soda you've ever had. I'm not kidding. I've been drinking this stuff since I was a kid. I'm not kidding around. Um, You will enjoy it. It's the best thing you could possibly have for your party this summer. If you're having a barbecue, you're going to want some Yacht Club Soda. So go to YachtClubSoda.com right now and place your order. Okay, on the show today, I'm very excited to invite uh, on the show a friend of mine, uh, Mike Rinaldi, who is an Army veteran. Um, I thought of no other person I'd rather talk to uh, this Memorial Day, and I'm really psyched to talk to him. I met Mike um, a little while back while working for the uh, Bob Healy campaign, and I'm really excited to talk to him about his service. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Good to be here. Glad to, glad you, uh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, so uh, I'm really glad you decided to talk to me, man. And uh, for people listening, uh, I've known Mike for a little while now. Um, Mike and I met each other uh, working on the Bob Healy uh, for Governor campaign back in 2014. Um, And then we've done a lot of work together in the libertarian space in Rhode Island. And um, I used to do a podcast with Mike um, called uh, the Rhode Island Liberty Report. Um, And so I know Mike pretty well. Um, But I, I... you know, it occurs to me, I, I don't really know that much about your military service, and Mike is a veteran, and um, we, we put on this event, you know, maybe, what, five years ago now, maybe, something like that, um, where um, we each gave a little bit of a talk about different things, in, you know, in the libertarian sphere, and Mike gave a presentation about his service and about his time in the military. And because I was prepping for my stuff, I didn't really catch all of it. And so I thought this would be the perfect conversation to have, um, especially with Memorial Day uh, weekend um, coming up. Um, and so I'm really glad you, you're, you're willing to talk about it, man. I know it's, you know, it's not always easy too. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, that, that, that um, presentation was uh, actually was an introduction for Scott Horton. If you remember, he came to speak and it, it just so happened that the day we had that event fell on an anniversary of um, some of my uh, friends that were killed in, in Iraq when, when, uh, when I was over there. So, it, yeah, it provided me an opportunity, which I had never told that story publicly, and uh, I was quite emotional. Um, my wife and my daughter were in the audience, so it was, it was, it was, they never heard it either. So that was, uh, uh, and I had the, the honor to uh, introduce Scott, too, which, which has been a big influence in my uh, evolution um, when it came to uh, foreign policy. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, me too. Yeah, Scott. So for anyone listening, Scott Horton is just, I mean, I can't think of anybody who knows more about what's going on in the world and uh, the history of foreign conflicts going all the way back to, you know, the w- World War One and even before that. Um, you know, he's really good at piecing together sort of the cause and effect of things and why things happen the way they happen and why conflicts start and what are the motivations and all those things. And I know that, you know, I've been listening to a lot of interviews lately, Mike, um, like old interviews of World War II veterans. Um, 
you know, who, who talked a lot about how they, they didn't talk about this stuff. They didn't talk about their service after they came back. And sometimes the first time uh, they talked about it was, you know, when they were well into their late seventies, even early eighties um, and how difficult it was at first, but that, you know, after they started talking about it a little bit, it, it got a little bit easier. Have you found that that to be the case as well? Um, from a personal standpoint, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I just, it's just something I kind of, um, I, I talk about the fun stuff and the funny stories and, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the friendships and, and that, and that type of stuff. Cause there's the stuff you want to remember. Right. Um, you know, and, and then the pivotal moments, you know, this, you know, when you join the military at young age, 17 year, years old, it, it's really a, a, you know, a defining moment in your life. And it kind of shapes you to be the person that you be, become in the future. So, um, you know, those are always interesting stories as well, or, or fun stories to tell, but, um, yeah, I don't like talking about the nasty stuff, you know, it's not, um, not something that, uh, is, is fun to talk about. If, if you indulge me for a quick second, my grandfather was a, um, was a world war II vet. So what you're saying applies directly to that. When I, when I first joined the, joined the army, I was 17 years old and, um, I remember telling him and he was an infantry officer in, um, in world war II and uh was wounded pretty badly and and sent sent home actually as a result but um i i don't want to say he was disappointed but he was uh was was um not happy um and he didn't he just he talked about how difficult it was and i i think bottom line is he didn't want me to ever see what he had to see or you know go experience whatever it was he experienced and, um, so I don't want to say he wasn't proud of the fact that I, I chose what to do, but he was, I, I think he was worried. Uh, was probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. And I mean, he, I think that, I think that's probably pretty common. And I, you know, I, I always wondered that too, especially with the world war two generation, because so many of them were drafted into it. Um, and didn't choose it necessarily, um, it, to begin with, um, you know, and then there are obviously some who, who did volunteer. And so, you know, I'm sure for a lot of them, the idea that someone would volunteer for something like that um, is is hard to understand. What what caused you to join, Mike? Yeah, so I I was in high school. I was always um, back then. I read a lot of books on uh, um, military history, uh, mostly Vietnam type stuff, just because that was the most um, recent. Well, the the Gulf War was was just as I was getting ready to graduate. As a matter of fact, I joined right after that. I, I guess it was in 1991 when I enlisted. So, um, yeah, so, so that was what it was. And I was interested in the whole adventure aspect of it. I would say more so than than anything else. That was the big draw, right? Uh, guns and bombs and explosions and, you know, all the, the things that little kid thinks are cool. Um, and, uh, you know, that was kind of what was set up. Plus, my grandfather's history, right? I was always... Um, um, you know, interested in, in his history. He, he, um, went through mil military academy, uh, Valley Forge military academy. Um, so that was a kind of, kind of a, I heard some stories about that and um, interesting side note, he graduated or he didn't graduate, but he went to school with uh, JD Salinger, uh, cat, you know, catcher in the rye. So that, that school was the, the basis of Percy prep, the whole, uh, thing from catcher in the rye. Oh, no way. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. That's pretty had, cool. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll circle back to this later in, as we, we talk here, but I had a yearbook that was signed by, by JD Salinger, which um, helped me get to Iraq. And I'll, I'll cover that when we get to that point. Oh but, yeah. Uh, definitely come back to that. That's really yeah, fascinating. So, so, um, so yeah, so that was it. Uh, that's that I joined when I was 17, I was still in high school and I initially joined the army reserves. So um, back in the early nineties, the reserve component um had infantry units. Um, it's, it's since changed. So they transferred all what they call combat arms units to the National Guard. And um, all reserve units became um, uh, combat support and combat service support. So there were very, very few, if any, infantry units left in the Army Reserve. So that was kind of an interesting aspect of my transition to active duty. So when I joined Interestingly enough, I was in high school, and when you join a reserve component in the National Guard, at least back then, you start going to drill right away. So that whole one week in a month, uh, two weeks in the summer thing, right? <laughs> right. 
So I was in high school on on the weekend, one weekend a month, going out and flying around in Huey helicopters, carrying an M sixteen. Like again, as a kid, I was I was fascinated, and it was it was like the coolest thing in the world, um, peacetime army and all. And uh, so so that was that was interesting. And, and then I went to basic training right after I graduated, and that, that dropped about a month later after graduation, I went to basic training. And I decided from there that I liked I liked it, right? Because I wanted to go active duty. So when I came back, you have to request it, right? So I came back to the unit. Um, I requested to go active duty. And little did I know that that whole transition process was underway from, from getting rid of all the infantry units from the reserves. And, and they were deactivating all these units. So there was this push to get Congress not to do this, right? So they were trying to keep manpower levels up. From my understanding is what I was told. They were trying to keep manpower levels up in these reserve units because it would have a big impact on people, um, you know, lively, not livelihoods, but you're not making that much money. But um, uh, if you get what I'm getting at, it would impact a large amount of people. So they were trying to say, that, you know, we were spending drills, writing letters to our congressmen saying, please don't deactivate my unit and all this other stuff. So the commander denied my request to go active duty. <laughs> so oh, that's so strange. It's so strange. Yeah. So, so I had to hang out there for, it was probably about six months, I guess. And then the inevitable happened and the, and the unit closed and went, went to go close. And of course the active duty recruiters knew that this was happening. So they have this call sheet and they called me essentially. Like and, immediately and then I went active yeah. duty. Yeah. So, so from there I went active. It was just a delayed process and uh, typical government bureaucracy. Right. And, and it delayed me going after active duty and I did go active duty. My first duty assignment from that point was, uh, was Korea. I went to Korea for a year. So did you have, um, I know sometimes, especially in the reserves, a lot of times there's certain specialties that people focus on. Did you have a particular specialty or something you focused on, or was it just sort of like, were you just sort of like a regular infantryman? Like, that's it. Yep. I was just a rifleman. Yep. Just regular went, went, uh, I, now I did take some special schools later on. Maybe we get into, but, uh, yeah, from that point I was just a private, right? So you don't, you don't have anything. <laughs> you're, you're just, uh, um, regular street infantry guy. So how in general, so you went to Korea and, um, how did you, would you describe your service and the stuff that you were doing in the places you went pre 9-11 like what was like where are some of the places you went what are the, some of the things you did and in general what was it like yeah so interesting because at the time korea was was one of the most active places you could go really um it, there was still a um i mean there still is an ongoing you know um conflict if you will between north and south but uh it, that was a an interesting moment for me, especially as a young, I was, again, I just, I guess I was 18 by that time. And, um, I, for those that don't know in Korea, the entire South is fortified, right? So it's, there's, there's all these blocking positions that are set up to, in case the North ever decides to roll, try to roll their tanks down South, they blow up, you know, they have these, all the bridges are pre-rigged with explosives and, you know, there are, there are these different, um, you know, um, obstacles that are, that are put in place and, and your fighting positions are pre, uh, pre-constructed. So as an infantryman, your quote unquote foxhole essentially is, is already built. Um, at least ours were where I was at. I was at Camp Casey, which is in, um, a, a town called Tongdashan. And, um, our job was essentially to defend the camp while they moved out and positioned their forces wherever they had to go. So you would have what they called alerts, and um, it was essentially it could be any time of the day um, or night, and you know the horn, the you know, siren goes off, and you get all your gear, you go outside, you assemble, and then you do what you got to do, right? You depending on what the sometimes it's it's to move out to a, do a field exercise for a couple of weeks, sometimes it's just to uh, just to muster to make sure everybody is accountable. Um, so it's kind of that was kind of a realization as a young again, kid, essentially, that this is real, right? Like this is not, a, you know, not a movie, you know, not the the romantic thing that you might've had or I might've had in my head when I first uh, was thinking about joining the military. It was kind of a, a um, put everything into perspective, I guess, if that, if that makes sense. 
And were you stationed overseas uh, when 9-11 happened or were you no. stateside? Yeah, so I was in uh, right towards the end of my military career, actually. was at, I was at Fort Benning when that happened. So that was when I was in Korea. We're talking 90, what was that, 93, um, 94. Yeah, 93, I think. Um, yeah, so that was quite a few years later. Um, actually, while I was in Korea, the, the Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-il, I think, was yeah, the, the father. Yeah, the father, right? The father. He died. Uh, interestingly enough, I was on the DMZ the day he died. Um, and uh, I think that was the day. <laughs> Memory, right? Uh, try to go back that far. But um, that was an interesting aspect, right? So he had sworn up and down. He would be buried in Seoul. And, um, you know, so that was a, was an interesting moment. Um, there was a period right around that time when we had one of those alerts I was mentioning and what had happened. So, so it, sorry to be talking about Korea too much, but it was, a no, it, it's, of, it's uh, all, uh, to me, it's all fascinating, Mike. Yeah, and it's yeah. all important, I think. So, um, so we had an alert and typically when you have an alert, you, you just get your stuff and you move out. And like I said, you go to training, right? You go to a, maybe a training site and you, you know, do a rifle range or, uh, some field maneuvers or something like that. And, um, this, this particular instance, um, Korea is being, a, is an unaccompanied, what they call an unaccompanied tour. So you're not allowed to take your family, but some people do. And, um, what'll happen is they they'll get their wives at like a job, um, with the DOD, they'll work like at the commissary or they'll get a, you know, some kind of clerical position or something like that. So they are able to bring their family over for that. And what the, what they'll do is they'll have all the civilians, um, there's a contingency. If there's a, an event, you know, they'll evacuate all the civilians. So we have this alert and all of a sudden they start telling all the guys in the, in the company that, Hey, tell, you know, gotta get your wife to report to the main gate. They're mustering all the, all the civilian families. So that happened, right? So that, that was weird, but it's not completely unusual. Um, then they started, um, for training, you have what you call a blank adapter on your on the end of your rifle. It allows you to sh um, fire blanks, right, to, and for the the weapon to cycle. They told everybody to put your take your blank adapters off your weapon um, because you can't shoot live ammo with with that on there. Um, and then they started trucking in all the live ammo. All of our um, our our pre-staged ammo um, pallets were, were started getting brought in. So this this started to escalate, right? Um, as as it was something was really going on, but nothing was being told us. And that was my first experience where I see like grown men starting to get extremely nervous. We had some guys crying. So it was like people, it was an interesting, um, again, moment that I look back on that was another uh, check the block. Like this is the real deal kind of thing. Now that being said, nothing ever happened, right? It was it was just, there were some miscommunications. The live ammo was never supposed to be trucked in, but there was a new lieutenant in charge of, you know, the logistics and, you know, this, this kind of thing happened, right? So there was a bunch of, it was a, it was a chain of events that really was kind of messed up, um, which doesn't give you confidence either, but that's, that's no, a separate yeah, story. Right, seriously. Uh, yeah, so um, that was, that was interesting. You know, and then just, from there I went to Fort Campbell. So really, just really quickly, because you said something that it sort of made me think of um, an aspect of military service that I've heard about. And obviously, I, I've never served in the military. You know, the only person in my family that I even ever talked to who served in the military was my grandfather uh, in World War II. So I don't know much about it other than what people tell me or, you know, what I read about it. Um, is, there, is there a real discrepancy between the uh you know the enlisted men and sort of the competency of the ng uh ncos um you know and the sergeants and things like that and then like the officers the lieutenants the captains like you hear a lot about just someone from my perspective of of sometimes the ncos are a lot more competent and a lot more capable than a lot of the lieutenants is that is that is there a conflict there or is there a, a discrepancy there usually um it's hard to find really good officers yeah, so it's it's that's an interesting point. Um, so typically, you will you will see that NCO will be more technically and tactically proficient if you if you want to put it. Yes, a, it's, it's a, almost a yeah, it's pretty much exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah, right. Because you figure by the time you make um, sergeant or staff sergeant, you've been in. You know, t I don't know what it is nowadays, but back then it was four to six years. You know, so you've got a, quite a bit of experience under your belt. Whereas lieutenant coming right out of either ROTC or one of the military academies doesn't have as much field experience. So they're, 
they're a little new. And now if, if they're a good officer, they'll listen to their NCOs, right? It's, it's your job as an NCO to train, especially a young lieutenant and get him up to speed. Now, that being said, he's decisions are ultimately up to, up to him. And I'm using him just cause that's what I'm used, used to from back then, especially, but, um, and you know, so obviously that's, that, that is what it is. So your, it's your job as, as a, especially as a, say the platoon sergeant who works directly with the Lieutenant who would be the platoon leader, right. Um, they would be work hand in hand. So they, they're kind of, kind of the platoon sergeant and the, um, the squad leader's job to get, get him up to speed. Um, and it varies, right? The military is just a segment of society. So you get some good people, some really, really good people. Sometimes you get a, a moron, right? Like you, you, it is who it is. You know, someone's going to graduate at the bottom of the ROTC class, right? Like so. <laughs> I know it's sort of like the uh, the old George Carlin line where he, he says, you know, somewhere out there is the world's worst doctor. Right. You know, like <laughs> it's not, not a comforting thought, but this, but that person does exist. Like there's someone out there who's a doctor who is the worst. You know, which is a crazy thing to think about. Um, okay, so let's let's just fast forward a little bit. So, what was your initial reaction um, when nine eleven happened? And were did you have to, were you called in like back into active duty? Were you still on active duty? Did you have to re up? Like, what happened there? Yeah, so I was on active duty. I was at Fort Benning. Um. I chose Fort Benning as a, as a, my final, what was to be my final assignment. And I had expected it to be my final uh, assignment. I re-enlisted at the time I was in Alaska and I re-enlisted to go to Fort Benning because I knew it was a training base and I knew it was more, more or less going to be an office job. And I figured I could get some, um, um, kind of a nine to five type type situation. Right. So I could get some, um, some school in some college courses and, and things like that. And what was your rank at this point, Mike? So I was a uh, E six. So a staff sergeant at that, at that point. Yep. And, um, matter of fact, I made staff sergeant while I was driving from Alaska to Fort Benning, um, which was interesting. Like I, the point, the promotion list came out while I was in tran in transit, but, um, yeah, so um, so I, I knew I knew that was going to tra a training assignment, and um, um, so they, that's what it, you know. I had just gotten married. I'd been married for about three years, my wife and I, who you've you've met my wife, um, and she she was a teacher, so she was a she was a teacher at Fort Benning. I was working in the um, the unit that trains all new infantry soldiers. We were responsible for training all. All the infantry schools at the time ran through Fort Benning. So if you go to an advanced training course for some kind of new, say a new weapon system or say, a, you know, sniper school or like all those types of courses, all the way down to basic training, right? All goes through Fort Benning. It's, it was the infantry training center at the time. So uh, um, I was, I was, that's what I was doing. I was working there um, and I was um, a resource manager. So I would make sure that when the soldiers showed up to the range, that all the ammo was on the range for them to, to train that day. All the, all the, the weapon systems were there. Everything was scheduled properly. The land was reserved and all this other stuff. So that, that, that's what my job was day to day. Um, and every Tuesday I would have a meeting at the headquarters building of Fort Benning. Um, and this is where we would kind of deconflict all those, all the, those resources, right? So we didn't double book a range and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I was getting ready to go to the meeting. I was at, at the house watching TV, just got out of the shower, saw the first plane hit. I was like, Oh geez, that's kind of nuts. You know, it's, and it, it, the story is very common with, the, with almost everybody. Right. Um, right. Yeah. It's, and, it's one of those, it's one of those events in history. I mean, yep. it just is. And, and so I, I just, I left the house and right? I just drove into, uh, onto base and, and I was walking into the building. Um, and I, as you walk into this building, you go by a, um, like a cafeteria and they have TVs in the cafeteria and there were a bunch of people standing around watching this event. And I stopped just to kind of catch up to see what was going on. And that's when the, the second plane hit and the whole room just, it was like, almost like a, there was a, a um, Everybody, everything went quiet. Everybody just kind of looked around and then everybody just started scattering and, and going to, you know, to their offices. They, it was almost, I don't re recall anybody even talking. 
saying like, this is an attack kind of thing, right? Like it was, it was just, everybody kind of just scattered and everybody um, knew immediately that yeah. something was up and that they needed, that they needed to get to work. I mean, almost yeah. immediately exactly. without there being any order or anyone saying, you know, do this, do that. Everyone just knew to jump into action. Yep. Yep. So, um, so I ran to the room where we have our meeting and I was like, Hey, you know, something's going on. I'm heading back and they were already, you know, yeah, meetings canceled. So I went back to my, my office essentially. And from there it was, it was just, you know, the TV was on and we we're trying to figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden, you know, trying to recall this, but, um, because of this, the office I worked in, which was called operations and planning as an S3 shop, um, it became our responsibility within our unit to be, um, as, as the tasking started getting handed down to start organizing, um, our elements to go do different things like guard duty and, and, and stuff like that around the base. Now Fort Benning at the time was an open base. You could just drive on. Anybody could just drive on. There were no gates. There were no, there were sections that were secure, but the base itself was, was, uh, was an open base. Um, so that had to be secured, right? So there, there, there was, um, you know, that all that type of stuff had to be done, and and guard shifts had to be, you know, uh, set up and all that stuff. So that that's what that was. And now my wife, who was at the time a teaching at the school on base, she had to, you know, get off base if I remember right and get home. But there again, the traffic was all backed up, and it was just just this big thing. Um, yeah. Was there any immediate worry at the time? I mean, before people became aware of exactly what was going on, um, like one thing I remember, um, and at the time I was a I was a senior in high school at the time, and I was at school when this happened. And I remember one of the things going around was no one really had any sense of exactly how big this attack was. Like we, it was clear it was an attack of some kind, but we didn't have any clue as to how big it was, how many airplanes there were. I remember there were false reports of a, um, of, of a terrorist being on an Amtrak train that was heading into Providence at the time. Like there was all kinds of misinformation. Was there any worry or thought at the time that the fort itself was, could be a target? Yep, for sure. Like you're, you're a, a key, you know, asset right like you're you're you are definitely on on a list potentially right so yeah that was de- you know for benning again being the 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 center for all infantry training lots of officers there lots of com- you know command and staff and um not the pentagon you know but it's it's you know other you know the third ranger battalions there there's you know elements like that um on the there's a uh a large uh, mechanized infantry unit. Yeah. So there's a definitely potential to be a target of some sort. Yeah. Well, I would, I mean, I would certainly think that it's sort of, it seems sort of analogous to sort of what Pearl Harbor was back in, you know, 1941. It's, I mean, everything's there. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems like it would be a very, very logical uh, target. If you were looking for military targets, obviously the Pentagon is, is the Pentagon, but um so, Especially when you consider it's an open base, right? So anybody could have been on the base at the time, you know, there was just in, in hiding out, you know, quote unquote hiding out, or you don't know, you know, you don't know what's going on. So, so when did it become clear, um, Mike, that you were, that you were heading overseas? So, well, yeah, you, it's, it's interesting, right? So, um, I got out of the military. So after nine 11, I was there, um, you know, and then, and, you know, the whole Afghanistan thing and, and, and then Iraq, um, I'm trying to think, was I there? I don't think we had gone into Iraq yet. No, we hadn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, we hadn't. Yeah. I I had gotten out. I got out in 2002. So, um, yeah, the way that, the way that played out, um, I, I ended up coming down on orders for, um, like I said, I enlisted to go to Fort Benning with the intention of getting out of the military, right? Um, while I was there, my daughter was born, so now I'm starting a family. I want to be home with my family. Like, you know, I kept moving my wife all over the country, and she's a teacher. She kind of needed to settle down and start her career. Um, so I, I had decided to, to get out. Now, prior to me getting out, um, I came down on orders for a drill sergeant, right? So... Um, Career-wise, that's great. Um, I was selected by the Department of the Army to become a, dr- a drill instructor or drill sergeant, and um, 
you know, if I had taken that assignment, it would have been good for my career. You know, I would have guaranteed promotion, things like that. But I had already decided I wanted to get out. So I declined the assignment. So once you do that, you become um, uh, a, a loss, essentially. You, you, you've already told the army that you're getting out, right? You're, you have no intention on, on, on continuing. And as you can imagine, in an organization, you're, you're kind of like, oh, this guy doesn't want to be here kind of thing, right? So, you know, it, it was, you know, I had gone from graduating one of my leadership courses while I was there with honors, you know, as seen as a, as a you know, um, a good a good mark on the on the unit's um, report to a guy that's now a loss, right? Like he's he's not continuing. So that that became what it was, um, and it had nothing to do with nine eleven. I was just getting out because what what would have happened was if I took the assignment, I would have gone to drill, and it's 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 a it's a mandatory two year assignment. So I would have had to do that for two years. And as you can imagine, a drill sergeant is a a long hours you're with the guys from the day they time they wake up to the time they go to bed yeah it sounds you like know, something that consumes your life it is it's it, and you work in weekends and it's it's it never and you do that for a, a minimum of two years mandatory with the option to take the third year if you don't take the third year what ends up happening nine times out of ten is they send you to a place like korea where you're again away from your your family for another year right because like i had mentioned yeah, and, i mean and you've been look i mean you've been in the army now for at this point 10 years nine exactly. years yep. um and um like you said you're you're you in your wife for towards the end of it was bouncing around with you from place to place and now you're starting a family you've got exactly. a small child and then this big thing happens and yep. You know, I Priorities mean, priorities change, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So, so then what? So then what? So, how did you? What happened? What? How did so, you? Yeah. So, so I got a job, right? So I, I went to DC. I got a job as a security consultant and um, security engineer. So I, I did, did basically did um, security um, assessments and vulnerability analysis for different, mostly federal facilities. I did, you know, the U.S. Treasury Building. I did. Uh, the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, and in, in which is the um, the extension of the White House, I, you know, all those types of consulting type work, um, and I did that for mm, I guess two years, and um, then I ended up getting a job doing maritime. Uh, so post nine eleven, uh, what ended up happening was the um, the basically the UN, the maritime branch of the UN, uh, created this. Um, maritime security regulation for all ports and ships, um, like commercial vessels, um, throughout, throughout the world, essentially. And all these, these ports had to be assessed and, uh, security plans had to be developed. Um, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So I did that. And as I was doing that, it was a company I was working for. I moved back to Rhode Island to do this. So the company, we, we had an office based out of Newport and the company head office was based out of, um, out of the UK, and we worked. Um, uh, we're a subcontractor for uh, Lloyd's Register. If anybody's familiar with the shipping industry, and well, what ended up happening is that company decided to stop paying our paychecks. Um, they were behind on salary, and um, I started. We started struggling. So my wife and I started to have issues with, uh, like, we're talking now. We're talking January in in Rhode Island, in Bristol. We live in Bristol. And like, I'm running out of heating oil because I can't, I can't fill the tank, right? Like, cause my paycheck's late and uh, they, they owe me, you know, back pay of $10,000 and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do, right? Here I am. I moved from DC where, where my, that consulting industry is pretty, you know, prevalent to Newport, Rhode Island, where there's really no security consultants other than what I was doing. And that company is not paying anymore. Right. So for me to start looking for a job that, that, that became difficult. And, um, so I decided to start looking at contract work, um, overseas. And now this is now by this time, Iraq is, full, you know, under full, you know, full on going. And, um, so I decided to, um, I got, I got a job. I got a job as a, a security contractor, uh, working for a small company called Cochise Consultancy. Um, so it's like a mini Blackwater, if you will. People will be f- more familiar with that term. And um, that's what I did. So getting, getting back to that yearbook I was talking about before, I ended up having to sell that yearbook um, to Sotheby's. We auctioned it off because I needed cash, not only to pay, you know, buy heating oil for my, my family and food, 
but I needed to get a certain amount of gear to, to, to be able to take with me to go overseas. So that's, that's, that, that yearbook was sold. <laughs> how much, to, uh, can, how much does it sell for? I'm kind of curious. Uh, 5,000 bucks. Wow. That's pretty, yeah. that's pretty amazing. That's a very, that is a very cool item. And it, I'm glad it was there for you when you needed it. It was there. You could, you know, you're able to sell it and get some money yeah. to help you I, out. Do you, um, so you went over there as a contractor. So explain just, just really briefly how, how does that relationship work? Are you, um, as a contractor, you're, you're paid, are you paid by the military, but you're not actually a a member of the military? Um, like how, how does that work? Yeah. So it's, uh, it depends on the contract, right? So our contract, we worked for the U S army Corps of engineers. Um, so it was a DOD contract, if you will. There was also like things like department of state might have a contract for certain things. So it all depending on what the, what the, um, the job was. Um, and our job was for the, so the, the Corps of Engineers was responsible for consolidating and destroying all the captured, um, munitions, um, that were Iraqi, right? So, um, as, uh, after the, the invasion, you go in and there's all these ammo depots, just like any other, you know, country they have where they, you know, where, you know, the bunkers where they store all their ammunitions and, and, and all that stuff, that stuff had to be all consolidated and accounted for. And also during the invasion, obviously those places were targets. So the, the air force would bomb these, these bunkers. And it's not like the movies where you bomb it, everything blows up and everything's gone and vaporized. What actually ends up happening is there's a big explosion, but a lot of the stuff gets just scattered, you know, and as you probably remember, IEDs was a big problem. And that's where a lot of the materials that they were using to make IEDs were coming from is these sites. So, I was um, a security person for the um, bomb disposal guys that were going out and collecting all this stuff up. And for you know, lack of technical detail here, they just put it in a pile and blow it up at the end of the day. And and they do a controlled demo, so it does actually get all destroyed. And then some of it was also repurposed, right? So if it was just like small arms ammunition, it was taken and 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 bring brought to a central facility where it was redistributed to the Iraqi army. And, and that's, that's how that worked. So we so were responsible. So, so just so I can try to, I'm trying to mentally conceptualize this. So instead of the military, let's say using riflemen or inf- infantrymen to go out with the specialists, um, they hire contractors like you who are trained and heavily armed to, to go out with these people um, as a form of security or protection, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cause and, the, you know, the military is fighting the fight. And what we're doing is, is guard duty, right? Like we're, we're, we're securing these guys. So it's, it's not a, you know, a good use of resources in their eyes to be having soldiers doing what, you know, they could be doing other things that are, they're more um, equipped to do if that, if that makes sense. And are you, um, are you in sort of the, what, what, what at the time was sort of the famous green zone or are you in more of a forward area or are you sent off to different places? Yeah, I went to all, I went, we went all over the country. So I was initially, when I was, when I first got there, I was um, a place called Hatra. I don't know if you remember the, the old Exorcist movie, the original. In the beginning, they, they have a scene where they're at this, like this sun temple thing that was actually filmed in Hatra. Right. Uh, I almost forgot. I totally yeah. forgot about that part of that movie. So That's right. With binoculars, you could see that from where, where I was at. Um, matter of fact, the mass grave that ultimately Saddam Hussein was convicted of, 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 um, you know, atrocities in the, in the court system, that mass grave was, uh, right outside of our camp. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty nuts. Um, so yeah, we, we, that was one camp and then we went to a bunch of different, yeah, I, I, I lost count on how many different places we went to. So I would um, imagine that the, the, the threat level on a daily basis is extremely high. Yeah, yep. Okay. We're all, we're, we're anywhere from, tw- you know, 12 security guys typically we were 12 American you know um, well we'll call them expats because you had some Brits mixed in there and and South African type guys but so you had 12 of us security personnel and then we had a guard force which were typically locals um that provided like perimeter security right so they'd be sitting in like guard guard towers and stuff and we'd have to manage them as well like you know so our like our um you know the, the area where we would sleep they would you know, do that perimeter. So we had a rotation. We do, we would do day shift. We would make sure those guys were staying awake during the day and then night shift, you make sure they're staying awake at night. And then you had another shift that would go out with the guys doing, um, 
the demo work. And then you'd have another group, what we called Convoy, which you were responsible for transporting people from your small little outpost to the main camps. You had to go pick up mail and take people to, you know, meetings and all that other stuff. So that those duties would rotate those four different, um, four different um, tasks would rotate through and you do like a week. I think it was, if I remember right, it was like a week of each and then you would rotate to the next and, and go and go from there. So the, obviously the most dangerous one was probably the was well, definitely was the convoy uh, when you're on the roads, taking people from point a to point b that's when and that's most, where the ieds are especially right, yeah. you know yeah. uh, prevalent is uh, and for people who don't know an ied is an improvised explosive device a lot of times right they would uh, set them up on roadways and try to knock down convoys and things like that exactly um yep. and okay so during this time right now how many now how many years would you say you were doing this work in particular i did that almost two years just shy two of years. two years yeah and was now You've become since then extremely anti-war, um, just like I am. Um, what were your what was your sentiment at the time? Were you was it sort of just like this is a job, this is the job I have to do? Were you a big believer in the mission at the time? Um, or and was there a moment while you were still there where you you started to kind of change in your thinking, or was it not until after you came back where you started to really sort of change your thinking on the nature of war and foreign policy and things like that? Yeah, it was, it was more so when I came back, I would say. So while I was there, I was definitely, um, I don't want to say gung-ho, but, you know, it was a, co- a couple of things, right? Well, and I had to be there, right? If you remember the job situation, right? That was that was the, that was the driving factor. Um, but then the mission, you know, I thought was a, and I, even looking back on it, it wasn't, it wasn't the worst mission I could have been a part of, right? Like we were trying to get, you know, the IDs weren't just killing soldiers, they were killing people, you know, innocent civilians and things like that. And we're trying to get rid of this stuff. So, so it's not being deployed, you know, uh, against uh, anybody. So there's, you know, kind of like demining operations, similar, similar vein to that, right? Like it's, it's trying to get rid of this, this stuff that's, that's just, um, you know, being used for obviously bad things. But, um, so there was that aspect of it. Um, there are a couple of moments when, you know, um, maybe we'll get into that story a little bit later, but that you're like, man, I sh-, you know, is this worth it kind of thing? And you lost losing friends and, and, and stuff like that. So that becomes, but it wasn't, um, it didn't really, you know, it's interesting because, you, you know, I think humans in general don't want to be part of something that they view as, as being bad. Right. Of course. Right. So they, you know, I, I think you just psychologically justify everything to to to, to the degree of um, this is like this is the right thing to do. And I recall just a little side story. I recall like drive when we drive places, drive around, drive through villages and cities and 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 things like this. It, there's a moment I, it stuck sticks in my mind. I recall seeing like kids. You see kids walk into school and things like that, and you're looking at this like, oh, you know. That these kids are going to school now, right? And I have an image of a, a little girl walking to school. She had been in kindergarten, um, had a little pink Hello Kitty backpack on and walking to school. And I remember driving by and seeing that. And you just, again, like I said, thinking, oh, these kids are going to school. It's a good thing. And you look at her face. I remember seeing her face and she had no smile on her face. She looks at us, sees us driving by. There's, there's no like happiness there, you know? But I didn't think of it at the time until years later. It's one of those images that sticks with you. And now I look back at it, I'm thinking, you know what, maybe she's going to school, but she might've also lost her entire family. Like she might have, you know, her little brother could be dead or big brother could be dead or, you know, like she's lost all of her uncles or, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) you're seeing this one little segment of thinking, oh, this is a good thing. But the reality is her life might be destroyed, you know, beyond any comprehension, you know? So that's, um. That's some, one of those things that kind of sticks with me and evolved my thinking to to the anti-war position, right? Like the uh, the, the the tricks your, your mind might play on you to try to justify you doing good when in reality what's being done is really not, you know? So. Well, especially, I mean, coming from our culture, right? It's sort of like we had this sort of generalized idea. I mean, just in the example you gave of – yeah, kids go to school, boys and girls go to school and they love going to school and it's a pleasant experience. And, you know, in a culture where, you know, um, maybe 
little you know little girls didn't go to school and they didn't go to school for a long time because in in for generations and generations um it it could have been a very scary experience it could have been just you know especially if this little girl had never gone to school and now she's you know a little bit older and she's going to school she doesn't know what's going on and she kind of has to go now and um and of course like you said like you know who knows the other stuff that's going on in her in her orbit at that time you know uh, it's like all we all we see is oh little girl goes to school that's good um we, we kind of it's easy for us to ignore all of the the horror that's 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 going on to make that that image happen of the little girl walking to school with the hello kitty backpack um you know it occurs to me too, and this is something I was thinking about yesterday, um, actually. And, and you know, and we had planned this interview for for a little while, but I yesterday I was I was on Twitter, and um, you know, uh, to me, it's like a, a lot of libertarians, especially, um, you know, are, are are rabidly anti-war, which I am as well, and which you are also. But there, it, a lot of times, it bleeds over into what what just feels like to me. Um, a lack of understanding and a disrespect from my point of view of, of veterans and people who have served. Um, and, um, and especially those who have served, who have come back and who, who, you know, who have a different take on what they've done and, and, and what we're continuing to do. Um, and this person tweeted something, I'm not even going to say who it was. It's some, you know, it's some random person who doesn't give their real name or show their real face. But, um, you know, I had tweeted something out about, you know, having a deep respect for veterans and people who served and, and, you know, people today and going all the way back to my grandfather's generation and everything. I just I have a real connection to that for, you know, and I've never served and I don't know what it's like, but I just have a really strong feeling towards those people just in what they're going through as well. And what he said was um, he said, you have a deep respect for people that sign up to invade and destroy foreign nations because the job is tough on their emotions, you know, question mark. What do you like? Do you think this is a problem in the libertarian space in general? Um, and what, like, what would you say to somebody who says something like that? So I, I don't know if you were there. I, I, and I don't know if you remember Ar Arvin Vora. I remember Arvin. Yes. Uh, yeah. She was the vice chair of the uh, uh, national libertarian party. Um, Quite a few years ago, he had said something very, very much along those lines, basically, you know, uh, yeah. So, again, not a veteran, right? So he doesn't quite get the, the mindset. And here's, here's my thinking on this. Most, most people who join the military are doing it for noble reasons, right? You've got to understand that we've been brainwashed since kindergarten, if not before that, to, 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 to the point where we think everything we do is good, you know? So you're essentially sold a false bill of goods, but you're not doing it intentionally. You, you think what you're doing is for noble reasons, right? You're going out there to protect other people, to, to defend your fellow countrymen. You know, there, there's a certain nobility in that even now, right? Even if, you know, we're not building the empire, we're just defending our own, our own country and we were invaded and you're, you're fighting to protect your neighbor who's an elderly, you know, whatever, right? Like that's, that's a good thing to do, right? Like, yeah. If that's what you in, think in that any, you're doing, right. I mean, you know, then that's, it's, it's one of the right. noblest things you can do. And that's what you think you're doing. Cause you've been brainwashed into believing that's what you're doing, you know? And it takes a certain amount of deprogramming that people have to come to, especially veterans. You have to come to your own realizations to be like, man, that was not right. You know, or, now that I look back on this, you know, that, that, that was not what I thought it was going to be. And that's why there is, I think that's why there's so many libertarians that are veterans or there's so many veterans that are libertarians because they see the actual result of our, you know, bad foreign policy de decisions. Not everybody's like that, right? There, I mean, there are certainly people who, who, you know, that I ran into that are, psychopaths that you know are are happy to be doing what they're doing but you know it's it's not a um, right and who know and who know what they're doing and know what they're doing exactly right. so i don't blame that i just i view it as that person just either hasn't come to the realization yet or they've it's hard to you know someone has been brainwashed for 20 years of their life to think that they're doing you know something that's that's again not to repeat the word too much but noble and and important and uh, 
to attack that person because of that, I think is is wrong. To attack the system for sure. Um, now, if that person's going around and bragging about it, you know, well, maybe they need to be put in their place. But but otherwise, it's it's um, yeah. To paint to paint yeah. with a broad brush it, seems it's unfair. Like yeah. a really bad idea and 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 disrespectful. And then, you know, it's something that bothers me about um, sometimes the way Michael Malice uh, talks about police officers as well. Um, you know, especially in small towns, a lot of police officers are joining their local police department to protect their neighbors and their yeah. properties from from criminals and, and things like that. They're not joining because they want to bust heads and they want to, you know, be uh, on a power trip. Some of them, sure, are are joining for that reason right but to paint with such a broad brush it just sounds like it, i don't know it, it seems like such simplistic thinking um you know for someone who's so smart and it, it, it's hard for me you know, it's hard for me to like to, to grapple with that um you know what do you what do you think you know and and i and i think just as an, another aside i feel like dave smith is really good um you know, in the way that he talks about these different subjects, right? Like he'll, he'll acknowledge that, you know, um, privatized policing would be much better than public policing. But while we have publicly funded police departments, you know, it'd be good if they were doing the things that you would want them to do in a privatized society, like actually protect property and actually try to enforce violent crime and, and, and things like that as in, and not do all the bad stuff, you know, but that, you know, but, that there's still a there's still an important uh service to be provided there right and it's sort of the same with the military i mean it's like there is an important service right to having a strong national defense um in case we are ever invaded or in case we do have an enemy who tries to attack us and and whatnot um do you do you think that we can get there mike do you think that there's that that you know we can get to a place in this country where we have, you know, even if we, we have a, a, our publicly funded military like we have now, where it's something that is used for the right purposes, for, for actual real defense, um, um, or is it just a byproduct of, you know, the, the merger of government and big business and military contractors and all these big corporations like Raytheon, where it's just, it's always going to be corrupted the way that it is. Yeah, I think I I think the system's beyond repair at this point. I I don't think there's any like walking it back. You know what I mean? You're not going to take baby steps to get back to where where it used to be or where you want it to be. I, I just think it's too it's too there's too much much at stake. You know, I, I mean, I'm of, I'm of the opinion there's been a you know a, a an insurgency going on within the United States since like the sixties, you know, and it's, it's, it's infiltrated every aspect of our lives virtually. Um, and we see it more so here in the Northeast than, than maybe some of our friends and listeners that are down South that aren't quite there yet, but they're getting there. Um, I, yeah, so I, I have a, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm a little more black pilled, I think <laughs> on that than, than I, you know, I care to be, but, um, and, and it's, and it's kind of been over the last maybe year and a half or so that I've, starting to come to this realization doing a lot of research on this kind of kind of thing but to, to the point i think you were making about like the like the cop thing and, and all that other stuff right like i i get i get that right i like I, I get that there are and i have you know friends that are that are that are cops they're good people i i, I mean i have a particular friend that's like he, he's just waiting to retire he's like i don't write tickets i i, I barely write tickets I, he's like i do it the most egregious ones and it's just to keep my you know leadership off my back kind of thing kind of thing and you know he, so he's he's he, he understands what's going on but it's you know what do you do you've invested your so but there, there's also the, the the side of it right like where you have the 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 whole brotherhood aspect right so you're not you know something is wrong and you're not saying anything like that 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 kind of rubs me the wrong way so i can see that part of it too um you know, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough call. I, I, I think the biggest, my biggest, um, I, I try to find the source of the problem as opposed to the, the, the symptoms, right? Like if we didn't have cops interacting with civilians so much, there'd be less issues. Right. And the reason they interact with, with the citizenry so much is because of the stupid laws that the politicians put into place that cause them to interact with people on a, on a, you know, 
continual basis, right? So right, and it, in ways it, that seem un, you know might seem unnecessary or unnecessary, or right. oppressive. Right. Yeah, well, like we talk about the, the war on drugs and you know all these. The, the, you know, that's one of the biggest ones, right? Like that's right. That's probably, yeah, probably the biggest one. That's right. in my mind. Yeah, exactly. That, that that's grounds for a you know a traffic stop, and I smell something, and okay, let's get the dog, and it's like all this stuff to find a you know if the person's got a plant in the in the trunk, right? right? It's As like, opposed to someone just broke into my house, exactly, and try to rob me, which is I think everyone would agree. Like in that moment, you want a police officer, especially if you're if you're you know if if you're not don't have a means to protect yourself or whatever, you know, especially, you know, it's. And those are the things that are getting the least um, enforced, I guess, is for lack of a right, better term. Exactly. But it's exactly. like, you know, right. if you have uh, something stolen out of your car and you call the cops, they're going to come and they're going to take a report and they say, well, we're probably never going to find that again, but you know, thanks for the report. Like it, it's nothing's going to be done. And this is maybe what's maybe a more, a little more blackpilled maybe than you are on it is the, the fact that I've been privy to conversations where, you know, some law enforcement people would think I'm on their side just by the nature of my background and just assume and say things that are highly inappropriate when, again, it was like when people talk, when nobody's, you know, when they don't think anybody's listening kind of, kind of deal, or they think they have allies that they're talking to. And I'm like, you know, well, let me bookmark that. Cause that's pretty friggin' messed up. You know, that, you know, that kind of thing. And there is a lot of that. Right. And a lot of uh, certainly right-leaning people don't like to admit it, but that that does go on, you know. And and I've been firsthand heard those conversations more off, more often than I'd like like it to happen. It's not just this occasional kind of thing, right? Like so, that's a little bit disappointing as well. So that, right, and that's and that's the balance, right? It's 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 pointing out the abuses and the problems that that are inherent in these particular systems, while not. You know, it's sort of. It's, I, I like the phrase. You know, don't cut your nose off to spite your face, right? It's 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 while also acknowledging that you know that there are a lot of people in these organizations who still think you know that they're doing the right thing or they're doing something good, and and just you know, like you said, there's a lot of programming involved there, and you know, they think they're protecting their families. Um, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on, man. You know, especially with Memorial Day weekend. You know, I just I just feel like you know. Um, there are so many victims of our foreign policy and of and of war and peace, and it's a messy business. And you know, our veterans are victims of that same policy, just like anybody else. Um, and you know, you can have your feelings about it. People can have their feelings about it, or whatever. But there, you know, there are people who have fought and in, in, in these conflicts and have died, thinking that they're you know that they're protecting their loved ones back at home. Um, and I certainly think that that they deserve uh, love and care and 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 um, support um, and respect. And you know that when when we our anti-war stance and in, in one of the biggest ways is we we want to keep people out of these situations, right? We want to we don't want to put our sons and our daughters into these situations, you know, where they that they can be killed or that they can kill someone else and, and some other family, some, you know, 5,000 miles away or whatever, um, tens of thousands of miles away. So, I, you know, do you have any just sort of last word here um, on, on that and just maybe just quickly tell people where they can find out about the stuff you're doing with, you know, libertarian, the, either the Libertarian Party or Liberty RI or any of that stuff, just really quickly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I'm I'm right there with you. I, I think it takes a, a certain approach, right? You got to know your audience. You know, if you you don't want to turn them off right away, right? Like it's just you know um, go there. I do think liber as libertarians, we have the because we have very little influence on er anything. We have the um, privilege, so to speak, to to take a hard line. Um, and try to move that Overton window. So maybe sometimes I'm a little more um, aggressive and trying to push people to think a little deeper in that regard. But um, I certainly uh, can understand where you're coming from on, on what you're talking about. Um, as far as uh, the libertarian stuff, uh, liberty, uh, you know, Liberty RI, um, the Rhode Island Liberty Alliance, which is um, uh, a group that we're trying to get going to help um, build, um, uh, you know, act. Uh, advocacy groups, um, that, uh, uh, you know, advocate for libertarian causes, you know, there's a big problem. Everybody tries to do everything under the banner of the libertarian party. When it's a party, it's, it's designed for a specific, um, function, you know, not necessarily advocacy, but political action. And, 
um, there should be groups that do um, advocacy as well, separate of, but in conjunction with, uh, you know, political parties. So, so yeah, uh, that's, that's, um, we're on Twitter. Uh, don't do much Facebook anymore, but. Um, Nobody does. <laughs> no, I, I actually gave up on Facebook like yeah, eight, it's pretty bad. 18 months, almost two years ago. It's pretty bad out there. <laughs> on a personal well, Mike, level, not just. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's pretty dead. Yeah. But Mike, again, I appreciate you coming on, man. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. And, um, you know, and I hope you'll, I'd love to have you back on again too. Cause it's, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. So I, I hope you'll come back and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Anytime, Eric, I appreciate talking with you as always so thank you again this is the just listening podcast i gotta go go where we just got i got that thing i gotta go with pizza artist eric john uh, wait a couple of minutes we'll all leave together okay this way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time please like share and subscribe